Even by the standards of alternative festivals, tech open air is unusual. An interesting experiment, quote Wall Street. South by Southwest with slightly more Hefeweizen, quote Bloomberg. This is really impressive. I met Nico through a common friend in New York. We had lunch together at the beginning of the summer. And he told me how he became the CEO of Europe's leading tech, music and art festival called Tech Open Air, shortcut TOA, in Berlin. And just like me, he wants to share the ideas and experiences of world's leading founders, investors, operators, scientists and creatives. You said to meet the people that could change your life. And your recent tech conference in Berlin had over 150 speakers and more than 5,000 attendees. At TOA, you raised the capital from the founders of almost all German unicorn companies like Talando, N26, HelloFresh, Delivery Hero, Auto One, SoundCloud, as well as Axel Springer SE, owns Business Insider, um, the leading VCs and startup organizations like The Family. Honestly, it's just really impressive. So a big congratulations on that. Thank you for coming on my podcast, Nico. This is a great opportunity to learn from you, from your experience, from your path. And yeah, I'm just beyond grateful. Would you like to introduce yourself first and tell us where you are right now? Sure. I mean, I think the introduction that you wrote is so good that I should probably ask you to send it to me so we can put it uh, on a website or something. <laughs> but um, I mean, you, you mentioned a lot of the things I, you know, maybe some more context. I'm, you know, Nico, born in Munich, and now I'm sort of between New York and Munich and uh, currently in New York. Next to Toa, I also founded two other companies that were in the space or are still actually existing in the space of servicing the tech and startup ecosystem. One is a co-working company called Ahoy, and the other is an agency business called Openers, where we help technology companies tell their story with uh, PR, but also help them to enter new markets. So specifically companies that want to enter the German or European market, we help them sort of set up. And then there were a bunch of other companies that I uh, started or, or co-founded that uh, didn't make it that far. Um, but those three are, are still around and I'm fully focused on TOA, on Tech Open Air. That's really inspiring. Thank you. May I ask you, can you share the story of how TOA came to be, how all of this happened and started? Sure. So basically, we had this co-working business that started just a few months before tour called Ahoy. Um, and we started, you know, with a very small space. We really started this with 500 euros. So, um, you know, we, we only rented a little space. Um, I think the like first space was... something or... Yeah, exactly. But, you know, the, it's smaller. Um, but the, the first space was obviously tiny. So it was just a, a few hundred square meters. And then eventually we, um, you know, grew into bigger spaces and then into multiple buildings in Berlin. Um, but, you know, that path basically meant we had no money for marketing or for sales or anything. So we decided to just host some events um, to get people through the door uh, and show them the space that we had rented because we needed to rent the desks in that space. Uh, and that's how we started doing events because I was not typically, you know, an event aficionado or, you know, an, an event guy. I had never really organized events before. I think that in my childhood, I certainly liked 
planning things and organizing things and you know getting um you know trips and vacations and so forth planned for my friends um but never had done um any bigger event and people liked the event at, at Ahoy there were very small events uh, some maybe only had 50 people uh, some were maybe bigger 100 200 people um and people kept on saying man you should do like a really big event like a conference and so I started thinking about that and, uh, and you know, together with a few other folks, um, we actually decided to ask the technology community, the startup community in Berlin, if we were to do a bigger event, what would Berlin want? What type of event? Um, so we nice. kind of crowdsourced the process also of conceptualizing the event. We had meetups, you know, at friends startups uh, that were open to the public. We called them town hall meetups and, you know, 50 to 100 people would show up and we would, you know, in a very democratic way, kind of brainstorm what type of event would Berlin uh, need to have that, you know, build a bridge not only between the startup and tech entrepreneurs, um, but throughout the city of Berlin. So our mission very fast um, became one where we said there's, you know, technology and there's startups and those are becoming bigger and bigger in Berlin. It was a, you know, early stage in the development of the startup ecosystem in Berlin, but you could already see that it got a lot of traction and it became a bigger and bigger part of the economy. Fun fact, by the way, Berlin, for those who think, you know, Berlin, capital of Germany, etc., Berlin basically had no business. I mean, you know, small, mid-sized businesses. But um, if you look at, you know, the, the DAX, the 30 biggest tech, uh, not just tech, sorry, 30 biggest companies in Germany, at that time, there was not a single company um, Bayer had a, an office, but I think the headquarter actually was counted elsewhere um, that was based in Berlin. And if you actually took Berlin, and this is still the case today, if you take it out of Germany as a city, the GDP per capita in Germany would actually increase and not decrease like with any other capital uh, in Europe. So it's really the only capital in Europe uh, that um, you know doesn't have, let's say, growth contribution to the GDP. The reason I'm saying that is that you know, back in those days, startups were very, very small and there was really no business at all. So the things that, you know, were happening in Berlin um, were, you know, music, art, uh, academia, politics, you know, some media with Axel Springer being based there. Um, so our mission very fast became about connecting those different communities to do something where, you know, the startup and technology world would connect with the other existing communities in Berlin. And that was sort of the genesis um, about, you know, this approach that we took where we said we're an interdisciplinary technology event. It's not just for startups and, you know, venture capitalists and investors, um, but it is inviting also to other disciplines that want to learn about technology, seize the opportunities of technology. And yeah, that's how we started the first event. And as a location, just finally, we went to a, a very famous rave club called uh, Kata Holzig from the folks of Bar 25. Uh, to symbolize this also and to say, you know, this is a technology conference, not in a ballroom of a hotel or in a conference center, but we're actually going where the creative scene uh, and community in Berlin uh, has their day to day. Thank you very much. I absolutely love your idea and your project and the fact that you really try to share knowledge and experience, right? I think this is super value. May I ask you, so you've already organized a few events and very successful also what were your key challenges in scaling the event and how did you overcome them um so one big challenge with you know events generally as they grow is sort of a cash flow 
um, situation because um, you basically have upfront costs. Uh, you know, you've got to book the location, you've got to um, book the vendors, you know, for, let's say, technology equipment, you know, the, the chairs, the, um, you know, the uh, lighting and the sound and, you know, all these different types you know, sometimes you need generators for more electricity, etc. So a lot of those costs end up, you know, taking place before the event, sometimes six months before the event with well, the yeah. first down payments. Um, but then all of your sponsors, they want to ideally pay you after the event. right? Mm -hmm. um, so everybody always wants to pay late. Um, and most of the ticket sales only happen very shortly before the event. So, you know, like in the, let's say, four to six weeks um, before the event, you typically have a very large chunk of your ticket sales. So that meant like, okay, how can we actually pre-finance this as we were scaling? So this is where, you know, we started to raise money um, and you mentioned it from, from these investors. And this is one, you know, of the ways that we overcame that challenge. Um, another challenge that I think we still to this day have is, you know, to, to figure out who is the core customer um, and what is the core customer's need? Because when you are a more, you know, broad and horizontal conference like Tor, um, especially the way that we started out incorporating, you know, academia and, you know, the cre creative industries, um, you have very different needs and very different stakeholders and attendees. And not all of them have, they may have an interest in one another on a personal or intellectual level. Um, but when it comes to, you know, a professional need, there may be, you know, not as much kind of relevance uh, than what we had hoped for. And this is where over time we also started iterating the event. And now post-pandemic, actually, we made quite a drastic change where we say, you know, yes, we want to be an open event. And we believe that, you know, many dif different industries and disciplines ultimately are affected by technologies, but ultimately also can seize the opportunities that technology presents. But at our core, we are a technology event. And that is reflected in our audience also. The core audience is people in the technology industry. But that was a journey, right, to, to kind of come to that conclusion. Because in the beginning, maybe, you know, you have as a founder often this idea of how you think, you know, the product, you know, needs to look because it would serve your interests, right? And I may be somebody who loves learning about, you know, pretty much anything. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have started, uh, you know, something like broad conference. But the majority of people, you know, that are your customers, and that actually pay tickets via, you know, often their businesses, um, they have a very concrete professional need. And it may be less about, you know, this kind of broad, broad, broad spectrum of inspiration, uh, and knowledge sharing that they're interested in. Or maybe rather, let's say, maybe they're interested in it, but, you know, their need, their business need, their professional need may be much more targeted. Uh, and so this is something that I needed to, I think, over years learn. And unfortunately, you have very long product cycles because it's only one per year. So these iterations take longer than uh, maybe they would if you have a software product and you can measure and track mm -hmm. every day and iterate. Faster um, feedback, but yeah, yeah, that was another, I would say, another challenge. And um and ultimately, you overcome that, also, of course, by speaking to to your customers, right? So that's something that is always useful. And also identifying who is really your core customer. Because if you think of a conference business, that question is not even that easy to answer because you have sponsors, exhibitors, you have attendees, 
Um, they both pay money, so and they may have even sometimes different needs also, right? The sponsor may be a B two C sponsor yeah. like Red Bull or you know Nike or um, Smart Water. Some of our B two C sponsors, they have different needs to let's say B two B sponsor like Amazon Web Services, Accenture, McKinsey, etc. So yeah, it's um, in marketplaces. Yeah, you need to spend a lot of time um, talking to your customers and identifying those core needs uh, and then stripping your product down to a product that meets those needs uh, in the most uh, effective way. Yes, very interesting. Thank you. Especially the finance part and the customer target group. May I ask you for the finance part because you have to make so many payments up front. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? How would you advise other people to start planning your event when you don't have already sponsors because you're you're starting from scratch? Do you would you recommend to go debt or ask for a friend or make a loan? How have you handled the situation? I mean, those are options, right? Um, and you know, right now we would have you know good you know let's say um, confidence in taking out a loan. I'm not sure if I would have done that you know, as a first event when it was, you know, very experimental. Um, so I think, you know, in that situation, maybe you want to play it a little bit more safe in the first event and, you know, try to just minimize your costs as much as possible. So, for example, you could, you know, ask maybe a big company if they uh, give you their um, big conference room for free and become a sponsor in return And then they may have a lot of equipment there already or a university, right? They have all the equipment. They have the chairs, they have the lighting, they have the sound, they have the mic, they have all of that stuff already there. Um, and I think that's also something that we learned the hard way because we always had that idea of oh, we want to be in this, you know, super inspiring off location where nobody has ever done an event before. So we went to Funk House and we went to old, you know, fabrics and you know, artist studios, and sometimes there wasn't even running water. We had to bring water. We had to bring, you know, um, uh, electricity. We had to bring the bathrooms. And, you know, we had to build kitchens so that we could feed our... I mean, we did a lot of these things that, in retrospect, I think, yes, they, they made, you know, very magical events yes. and probably paid into our brand. Um, but I would have probably, in hindsight, um, you know, tried to do things that are just more, more cost um, efficient because in the end, I also think I ultimately overestimated the, um, the interest or need that people have in this, you know, very high quality, unique experimental production, which is something that we really, you know, try to build because we've seen it in America um, but I think this is where the European market differs from the American market and where specifically the German market differs from pretty much any other market. Um, you know, we like things a little bit, you know, more just, you know, humble. Like we, we just want to, yeah, down to earth. Like we don't need the whole, you know, crazy, you know, experience where the chef is, uh, you know, doing something in a, in a pop-up kitchen that you built um, in a place that doesn't have electricity, Right. Um, and there is just not as much, um, uh, you know, let's say, a willingness uh, for people to pay for this premium type of production. Yeah. I found. Maybe other find it. And I'm sure if you're a luxury brand, um, you know, as MS or something, you know, you will treat your customers to these type of experiences. 
But as a business where you have to pay tickets and you have to then pass on those costs to the ticket buyer, I felt it was um, I felt it was difficult to do. So I think yeah, if you start out and you want to limit costs, um, just think about think about really two things. You know, what problem are you solving? Which is a question for any startup, right? Yep. So it's but it's one that often I think event organizers, you know, maybe don't ask as much because they have their idea of like I want to throw this event and they often think about production and it would be so great to have something here and then have this musician play and it's going to be this great ambience this is all nice right but what's the problem you're solving so I think you know ask yourself that and then who are you solving it for uh, and very concretely if you want to make this a successful financial business um, especially in the b2b space then ask yourself who's buying what from whom because the best conferences are those where there's buyers and sellers that actually transact in some form or another. Um, and this is, you know, where old school trade shows, you know, of course, have done this for, you know, sometimes hundreds of years. And if, if you concentrate on those two questions, you will notice that actually you can limit costs quite a bit because then it's not so much about all that production expenditure. You can just piggyback on you know, a university location or on a corporate location. So that's one, sorry, length, lengthy answer. Um, but no, second, would be, second would be, um, of course, to, uh, you know, you have to push your sponsors to, you know, at least give you a down payment, you know, pay as early as, as they can. Um, you have to discount your tickets for ticket buyers um, for early birds so that you get that cash in early and get some people to buy early because they get a healthy discount. So those are some of the things that anybody who's gone to an event um, knows from their own experience, right? That tickets are cheaper in the beginning. The reason why event organizers do that is because everybody has that cash flow challenge. Thank you very, very much. I think this was super helpful. May I ask you, you told me what problem are you solving? May I ask you, what problem are you solving? Yeah, that's very good. Um, good that is you it? asked because it's good that you ask because I've, I've only asked myself, you know, a few times uh, over the last few days. Um, so we, you know, we really are, you know, iterating on our product, you know, like our mission statement in the beginning was, you know, to build a platform for interdisciplinary knowledge exchange and collaboration. Right. So that was what we thought was the problem that we were solving, right. To help different disciplines, especially the creative scene, the academic scene and the technology startup ecosystem to collaborate um, and share knowledge among one another. But as it turns out, you know, I mean, it worked to some degree, but I think we made our life harder than it is because it was a very broad kind of fluffy mission statement and thereby also a sort of broad problem to solve. And maybe not even a huge pressing problem, but more like a yeah, sure, we all would like to learn from other disciplines. And yeah, sure, here and there, we would like to, you know, collaborate with a different industry. And these things happen and universities partner with, you know, startups and spin out of, you know, these things happen. But it is not, you know, a very pressing problem where I think there's, you know, a big market in business to solve for it. So we ended up basically staying with that mission, but we shortened it to we help people and um, organizations become future-proof, right? So here we wanted to solve the problem of, you know, companies facing an ever-complex, uncertain 
technological world and helping companies and humans in their personal development and in their personal careers to kind of navigate that, you know, complexity that is ever increasing with, um, you know, ever accelerating technology change. And I think that's also a great problem. Um, and it's a massive problem. But that's almost like a problem. I mean, that's a problem for, I mean, almost any politician out there, right, that yeah. we vote and elect. Like, it is maybe the problem of our time. Um, it's certainly one of the problems of our time, one of the maybe top four or five, if you listen to Yuval Harari, right, who, who talks about AI being one of the three threats of, of humankind. But it's also as a business and as an event, it's a little bit too macro. It's a bit too complex. It's like, well, what? So I buy a ticket and then Tour is going to help me, you know, solve that problem. So now, post pandemic, we decided to really break it down even more specifically. And basically, um, you know, we verticalized our content for the first time. So now we say we are a deep tech event where people, you know, the mission statement actually is going to change. So, um, you know, it's not final yet, but it'll okay. change soon. But it will be along the lines of, you know, helping basically founders, investors, um, market leaders and talent to learn about deep tech, the industry as such, and seize the opportunities that exist in the deep tech industry. And by deep tech, we mean specifically climate tech, health tech, synthetic biology, AI, and Web3. So those are the verticals that we're focusing on. And this now needs to be packaged into a, a better uh, slogan or, or mission statement. Um, but basically what we are doing is we are breaking this whole macro of like, yeah, we help humankind you know, with technology change to we help certain stakeholders, investors, founders, market leaders could be corporates and talent people looking for jobs to seize opportunities in very clearly defined market segments of technology. Because technology is even bigger than that, right? It, yeah. it encompasses a lot more fintech and e-commerce and advertising tech and edutech. So there's a lot of things that we're not concentrating on any, any, anymore because we felt like we needed to become more specific in our value proposition. Thank you. Yes, I think that's great, especially because your mission seems to be so broad. And I think it started very broad with this great idea that we want to share knowledge in every mm -hmm. sector. Everyone who has something to offer, welcome and let's discuss. Um, and I think that's still very great. But I really appreciate that you shared that you felt like even you with your successful event planning figured out, okay, we need to narrow it down. We want to focus on like one sector, one industry a bit more and really invite the experts and therefore have a better defined customer group, right? Yeah. Yeah. You nailed it. You yeah. should help us work on our new mission statement. But yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, totally, that's totally it. And I think in the end, you know, if you look at like our numbers, you know, yes, we, we you know, certainly had a lot of mind share. I think, you know, the brand is well respected and so forth. But ultimately, as a business, it should have been easier. I wouldn't say we had that 100% so-called product market fit, mm -hmm. right? Where, you know, kind of your product flies off your shelves. Um, and it was also the feedback just of our, of many of our um, customers who said, we love Tor, but it doesn't really connect 
with our business goal one-to-one. -one. It's just yeah. a little bit too broad. And I think this is so valuable, even though feedback can hurt you in there, because it's probably your baby. It's your one thing and you wanted to make it perfect. And someone's coming and says, yes, this is great, but actually it doesn't really work for us and for our business. But when people are willing to tell you why it doesn't work and what you can change to make it work, I think this is where it becomes really interesting, right? 100%. It's also that, you know, when you are starting out, like I almost wanted to do everything opposite to how things were done in the conference the pioneer, industry. yeah. Because I thought it was all boring and, you know, they go to these ballrooms and to these conference centers and, you know, they don't care about how the stage looks and there's no nice furniture and, uh, you know, the talks are only about self-promotion and, you know, companies pitching themselves. It's not very intellectually stimulating. The content is not differentiated. It usually has a one-track kind of, um, you know, um, take on a subject. So yeah. we would bring in, you know, like, a, let's say, you know, an example of a tour talk is Paula Antonelli from the MoMA Museum, the curator in New York together with Luke Woods, the chief designer of Facebook, and they would have very opposing views um, about, you know, design and so forth. And, I mean, I could go on and on and on of things. Like, we don't have badges. You know, we still don't have badges. Uh, even though everybody wants badges, we thought, like, people, when they go to a conference and everybody wears a badge, you are at the coffee break only looking for who's the one person that, you know, will help me, rather yeah. than maybe just have a more human um, kind of a connection and serendipitous kind of connection with whoever is just next to you. So we did so many things. I could probably list another 50 things that we did that were very different to what every other conference did. And again, I think some of it, you know, certainly has gotten us our core fans. And, you know, we certainly have core fans that will say it's the best conference ever. And they come to every event and, nice. you know, like they love this aspect. But when you think about scalability, when you think about profitability, when you think about, you know, making it just a little bit easier and thereby also, I will always remember our core mission and I will always make sure that our content is not just self-promotion and that there is intellectual stimulus and that we have different viewpoints on stage, right? These things will take place, but I'm much more open now to doing things that that ultimately are part of the industry for a hundred plus years because they work. And maybe we eventually will even have name tags because in the end, I have to also respect my customer um, and other potential customers who I want to attract. Um, if they spend 500 euros on a ticket, they want to have a business result out of this, right? They want yeah. to go home and they want to have met the right people and, you know, they want to, make sure that they get return on investment and, you know, the lanyard may actually be a positive contributor to that, mm -hmm. to such an experience. So, you know, ultimately it also makes sense to speak to the incumbents. Uh, I did this, but I did it quite late. I've done it a lot over the last two, three years. You know, I spoke to, you know, all these very large conference and trade show uh, organizations. And then you find patterns of things that they all do, And they just work. And then you start experimenting with them and you're like, oh, yeah, actually oh. people, yeah. Can you give don't... me two or three examples of things that work and that yeah, you've I learned mean, afterwards? It's, 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 for example, you know, one, one thing that production, we spoke about it, right? Like 
the value that, you know, maybe an event producer like myself and maybe some other event producers and some maybe of the creative world that they will value, you know, the way that we would build the stages, furniture that we would have, the food and beverages that we would have, yeah, you know, I think are, so. are, are things that are ultimately not as important. It is much more important that you have the relevant people there um, and that you um, give them enough room to meet and to transact and to have business. That's one example. Another would be breadth of content. So, you know, I thought like I need nine stages and I need everything. And this year we cut the stages um, significantly. We will probably next year be at four stages instead of nine stages, more concentrated, which actually helps people navigate. I thought people would complain and say, oh my God, I'm, you know, it's not enough content. It's not enough speakers. Why don't well, we have 300? But actually people love that focus. And I only got good feedback on sort of cutting uh, stages. I think also this, you know, idea of inspiring content versus content that, you know, really helps your business. And also this kind of, let's say, companies promoting themselves on stage. In the beginning, because I also am a journalist by trade, and for me, it was very to distinction between what is editorial content and what is sponsored content, right? Like a newspaper has a very, very clear distinction here. Yeah. And some don't have any sponsored content and others have it, but they call it editorial section and they make it clear that this is not editorial. I think today we are probably still the only conference that I know of in tech that still does that separation. Like we don't have sponsored content without marking it sponsored content. But what I, I think underestimated is actually how much people like that content. Because, you know, if you have the right companies there promoting, you know, the right topic um, or the right product that is relevant to the audience, it's extremely popular. So if you have somebody from Amazon Web Services talking about, let's say, a new you know, instance or microservice that they're launching, developers will like rush to that talk, right? It will be super yeah. interesting to them because they work with this product every day. Yeah. So that's another example where, you know, um, I totally changed my stance and, and now we, you know, give a lot more room to this type of content. But you have to make sure, I think, that it's really relevant. We've also had sponsored content that didn't work. Um, and I think it's still important to me that it is marked clearly so that the attendee knows what is a paid for content slot and what isn't. And I think all the conferences should do it, but maybe also that's another example where I think it's important and actually nobody cares. That's but, um, yeah. 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 Setting your focus, right. I think that's a really good point. Knowing that you spend a lot of time in the U S what have you learned about event planning over there? Oh my God, so much. I mean, one, I think, you know, people are not so price sensitive. Um, you know, people spend a lot more money on both professional development, but even personal development, right? Like people have coaches, even, you know, let's say Series A or Series B startup founder will typically have a coach and coaches here are incredibly expensive. And so there's a lot of money spent on professional and personal development, which of course for an event organizer is amazing. Um, so, you know, it's just a much bigger market, less price sensitive customers. Um, I think there's also a bigger span between kind of, you know, very high end premium 
production summit, for example, the founder was a tour this year. Um, we've been friends and, you know, um, I know that, you know, that their ticket is like $6,000, the cheapest ticket, it goes up, I think to fifteen twenty thousand dollars Um, and in America, people are more willing to pay for such a premium experience to network among a very kind of select audience. I have a feeling that would be difficult in the tech community in Europe. I haven't seen it happen yet. We have a product that is premium. It's called Open Circle, and but it's much cheaper, um, and it's uh, it's it's just not so easy um, to sell. So I think that's another one. I think even if uh, sometimes maybe it is bare bone production. So I've been to some. I don't want to name them, but very successful large conferences and. You know, they use a lot of plastic banners on the stage. You know, there's not much, let's say, consciousness around sustainability. For example, we try to use a lot of sustainable materials. Yeah, um, I noticed this in New York as well. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I've, I've noticed that. Um, but I think, you know, for tech, of course, you know, here, you know, you have, you know, all the the, the big innovators. So it's, it's a very fruitful market and... Um, it's an interesting market for us to explore as well. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, can you imagine to expand your event planning also to the US? For sure. Um, I think it would require more investments that, you know, it would require resources that I think right now we're not quite ready for um, because production here is, of course, a lot more expensive. You get higher price points, but you're back to this kind of cash flow challenge, right? Yep where you have to pre-finance a lot of the very highly priced production costs in the US. Um, we are thinking about doing something that is verticalized on one specific vertical. So start with a specific vertical and really just build a smaller event for that vertical. Um, other than that, I'm very bullish on emerging markets. So, um, you know, we've had a conference in uh, Asia for um, five years now, Japan, although that's not an emerging market, of course, but you know, very developed market, but um, we are in this discussion to uh, grow that event with a bigger Asian footprint. Um, we have an Asian um, media company uh, as one of our shareholders. Um, and um, also, you, you weren't a tour, but, you know, we, we get more and more visitors from Asia actually at the main event in Berlin. Nice. Another market we're interested in is India. Um, of course, we had a member of parliament from India a tour this year and we are building out our relationships there and, um, you know, obviously super interesting market for all the macroeconomic reasons. Yeah, um, absolutely. And Mexico is a market that um, is just very organic to us because, um, you know, I happen to have a lot of friends uh, in Mexico. And, very uh, nice, huge, right? Very nice people, huge love and passion for this country. That's true. <laughs> um, and also, um, I think, an interesting market because... I do think that when you are more horizontal, right? When you say this is a technology event for different verticals, um, not just fintech, not just a health tech event, not just in an AI event, then I think actually emerging markets are, you know, better catered to your event because in an emerging market like Mexico, for example, the ecosystem is emerging all the different players are popping up, new accelerators are starting, new VCs are starting, corporates are thinking about, you know, their venture capital strategies and how to interact with startups. Startups are popping out like crazy. Universities are, you know, building out more entrepreneurship program. In that world, 
there's a high need for people to meet one another because it's all starting. You don't know who are all the accelerators yet. You don't know them personally. Once a market matures, which is why if you look at America, I don't see a lot of horizontal big tech events. I mean, there's tech runs disrupt, but even that is very focused on kind of, you know, um, earlier stage startups and, and pitching there's South by Southwest, but that is, you know, very broad and, and horizontal, you know, with um, kind of a big target for, uh, you know, corporate attendees. Um, but when it comes to tech and startups, you know, most of the events that work here are more verticalized on a specific new emerging field, because then you have yeah. the same situation. If you're doing an event now in climate tech, then that is an ecosystem where so much is happening. There's more need to map out the ecosystem via a physical gathering. So that's why I'm very bullish on uh, on emerging markets when you want to do conferences that are a little bit bigger in scope. Nico, thank you very, very much for your time, for your patience. And I've already learned so much and I think this is super valuable. Everything that you've shared from your hands-on experience, I think this is great. May I ask you one last question? Sure. What would be your number one career and life advice Casual. oh wow i think it depends very much on on the character and i think maybe that's my one my first advice would be you know try to reflect really what type of character you are and there's like even very tangible things you can do like do the maya briggs for example which is sort of like a, a psychogram um that is used by many businesses for you know decades and that basically segments, you know, humankind into, I think, 16 different profiles, right? Uh, and even doing that and reading through that, and of course, it's not the 100% truth, but it will give you, and maybe some people are already so self-reflective and they know. For me, it was actually quite useful. Um, it will give you maybe some idea, okay, what are, you know, potential areas of strength for you? Because I would certainly say double down on the strength. So another advice, um, double down on your strength. But if you're not so sure yet, what am I really good at? Ask your friends, you know, do these type of tests. There are many such tests um, that will give you just a little bit of a hint of what type of person you are. Because if you are, let's say, I'm a campaigner or an activist on Maya Briggs, right? So um, for me, everything is interesting. Like, you know, it's very difficult to concentrate on you know something you know I, I i could probably not have a an academic career in just one field that is very specific and you know go super super deep and niche into one thing with maybe less interaction with other human beings right yeah. like i'm thriving with people i'm thriving with you know being stimulated you know with different things all the time so if i had known this straight away well then you know you can already segment out a lot of things that probably are not the right path for me and probably running conferences would certainly tick a few of those marks. That's one advice. The second is that the weaknesses that you do have, like try to reflect better on what they are. Of course, try to sort of minimize as much as you can. But ultimately, when you're a founder, try to complement them with, uh, with people in your team. And um, I think that's something that maybe when you're a little bit later down in your career, you already have a business, but maybe it's small and it's five or 10 people. Um, that I certainly, I think, had to learn where in the beginning I thought like, okay, everything I'm not good at, I have to now also do and get better at because otherwise they're not going to respect me as a leader if I have these blind spots, you know, where I'm really shit at. 
but that was certainly the wrong move. Like you should just try to find person that just compliment that and just be very open with your team on, you know, what you're good at and what you're not good at and what you need help with. Um, that's another one. Um, generally, I guess, try a lot of different things. I think this passion thing, I don't know, Scott Galloway says, you know, it's a bit overrated, you know, and I think also there's something to it that we may look for too much in our job. Uh, and we could go into an entire podcast around why that is, you know, decline yeah, of religion. Email me. Thank you. Yeah. Decline of religion, um, <laughs> you know, people starting families later and later in life. Um, you know, so there's, you know, things that, you know, we used to always have that we have later in our lives. And I think as a substitute, people look for a lot of these things in their jobs. And it may be too much that people are looking for in their job. So I think also a healthy um, expectation of what your job should deliver to you and what your identity is in connection to your work and where the boundaries have to stay. Um, I think that's uh, that's definitely also an, an advice I would give. But again, also works for people like me and for others, they may want to just go into one very specific niche and and live and breathe that and and nothing else and that balance is yeah. fine for them so i think it's important to find the right balance for everybody that's a great advice thank you very much for sharing everything on your heart and what you've experienced again i have learned so much and i'm i'm really excited to edit this podcast and to get some feedback Thank you very much. Thank you, Nico. Alexander, thank you so much. Thanks for doing this. Um, and let us know once it's live so we can share it. <laughs>